New rule, the, <laughs> the Obama birthers, the 9-11 truthers, and the moon landing deniers must merge their theories so we can have all the batshit in the same place. <laughs> and then we'll take away your internet so you'll have to communicate your theories the old-fashioned way by sitting on a park bench yelling at a pigeon. Hello, everyone. You've just been listening to American political TV show host Bill Maher, and he's not the guest on today's podcast. I played this clip because in it, Bill is expressing the fairly common contempt towards views of the world that are often labeled conspiracy theories. The ability people possess to write off entire perspectives on the world prior to investigation has always fascinated me because I don't seem to have it very much myself. I've never had that sense of certainty that the world works in a certain way and not in another certain way. It's always appeared as very mysterious and unknown to me. Therefore, when I hear people express contempt for certain positions, I always really want to know how they arrived there. How did they get that level of certainty? Now, I'm not concerned with two out of the three issues that Bill cited as examples of lunacy, but I would like to focus in on the 9-11 truth one. Ever since the day itself, I've been fascinated by the idea that the events of September 11th were perpetuated by elements within the US government. More than that, I've been fascinated by the divide between those who, upon investigation, feel this becomes obviously the case and those who feel no investigation is necessary, it's obviously not the case. Having suffered derision for simply asking the question myself, I've been interested in how society derides and writes off anyone off this perspective. I've always felt they deserved, at the very least, a fair trial. To have their case judged the same way we would judge any case if it fell into a more conventional worldview. And that's what I'm planning to do in what will hopefully be a series of interviews, looking at how people came to have radically different views on the world we live in. Can these views be taken seriously? Or should such people really be screaming at pigeons in the park? My guest today is Dr. Richard Elifritz. Dr. Elifritz is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of the Bahamas. Several years ago, he completed his PhD thesis on the discourse within the 9-11 truth movement. He did that whilst being a part of the truth movement himself. In this interview, I ask him about his research into the truth movement, but I start by asking about his own journey with 9-11 and how he came to hold the kind of views derided by Bill Maher. With, uh, with the namesake 9-11, it started where it started with everybody else on September 11, 2001. Um, I was on my I was driving on my way to high school. I thought it was some ridiculous stunt that the local radio station was pulling. I changed the station. It was the same story. I got to school. There were TVs on in every classroom, and you know, people were just in shock and and um, grief stricken and bewilderment. And I, you know, <clears throat> was kind of like everybody else, and I just listened to the news. Didn't know much about history, world history, politics, or anything like that at the time took everybody's word for it. I do remember one time um, asking my one of my teachers about the Pentagon. I said, why, why aren't more people focusing on the Pentagon? Why is it all the Twin Towers? 
And I, I remember being kind of shamed, like being directed to focus on the Twin Towers for some reason. And, it, and you know, this isn't like a teacher who's, you know, like in the New World Order cabal or something like that. It's just one of my teachers. And for the reason I kind of bring this up is because it's sort of representative of, you know, society's institutions and how they, they guide what you think about mm. and, and thus they guide what you talk about. And so um, I got my draft card in the mail, my, my selective service card in the mail two weeks later. And of course, this is when the, the drums for the Afghan war were just, you know, beating full force. And just for the I, European I, audience, what the draft card, is that something everyone gets in the U.S.? Well, at least males, and, and okay. uh, except at the time that I was that I turned eighteen. So I turned eight, eighteen two weeks after um, September eleven, and you get a selective service card, which basically is a draft card. They'll draft you into the military um, that that you have to voluntarily sign. But if you don't sign it, you don't get like federal aid for um, like student loans. So that that really kind of put the world into perspective for me. Um, you know, the next year when I was a, a college freshman, uh, I think in March, I was watching on TV as Iraq was being bombed. Um, I've always been somewhat anti-war. And so I, I remember being upset, but not too upset because I was fairly disconnected from that aspect of the world. I was a college student. I was studying psychology and sociology at the time. Um, and like my sociology professors would you know, show documentaries like Michael Moore, um, you know, his, his films like Roger and Me or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember if I watched Fahrenheit 9-11 in a classroom, but I did watch it. I, I do remember when I watched it some years later when I was working on my master's in sociology that I remember like I was, I was pretty disgusted with the insinuation that uh, George Bush had any, anything to do with allowing 9-11 to happen, which is a pretty strong underlying uh insinuation and in, and in fahrenheit 9-11 so so like the the origins of, of my dissertation really um came after that when i uh overheard a couple of my uh professors my major professors talking about this documentary zeitgeist mm -hmm. and uh so i was i was basically sitting on a bench eavesdropping on a conversation and I figure that, well, if it's good enough for, me, for these professors, it's good enough for me. And I had access to the internet at my office. And so I watched it on the clock. I don't, I don't mind a Benny. Illinois can come after me if they want. But uh, um, if you've ever watched Zeitgeist, it's pretty slow at first. And, you know, it, it, I mean, it's very polemic and like, you know, heterodoxic with the first clip when it first um, scene when it's talking about religion and then it goes into 9-11 I was just utterly confused like what does one thing have to do with the other mm. and what really caught my attention was the the clip of Stephen Jones uh, talking about the third tower that collapsed just say who and, Stephen Jones is please he's one of the um, the scientists for 9-11 troopers and he's an engineer or an architect or uh, he, Stephen Jones is a physicist hmm. who worked at uh, Brigham Young University in um, Utah, and he's kind of famous for uh, working with other um, physicists and chemists around the world, like Niels Harrett, on uh, papers that indicate that there were um, explosive material found in the dust samples right. from yeah. uh, the World Trade Center uh, uh, complex. 
Sorry to break so, the point, yeah. Please carry on. Well, another point of interest for Stephen Jones is that he was eventually, he came under a lot of political pressure and was eventually fired, which is something mm -hmm. that I had to take into account when I was working on my dissertation. Sure. Because I, I knew at that time that people like Kevin Barrett and uh, Stephen Jones had lost their jobs. And so I knew that going into it, I was jeopardizing my career. But, um, you know, like with the, with the origins of that study, it really kind of goes back to learning about World Trade Center Building 7. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I mean, just learning about it, not analyzing its collapse or anything like that, because at the time I, I had completed most of my master's work. Um, I think I was in my last semester. I considered myself a fairly educated, informed, smart person. So why didn't I know about this? Right. And there's kind of a couple explanations. There's a, a lot of different explanations, but basically you can say, well, the reason that you didn't know about it is because it's not important. If, if it were important, the news media would have reported on it and, and it would have been a fact um, as relevant and known as the collapse of the Twin Towers, it's, you know, et cetera. Um, or the other reason that, you know, you can say I didn't know about it and, and that a lot of people don't know about the third tower that collapsed on September 11, 2001, is because it's suppressed information. And it was certainly suppressed in the 9-11 Commission report. Its collapse was never mentioned. They wanted to wait until the... Um, until it was studied by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And uh, sort of along those lines, I remember in, in 2008, when I moved down to Oklahoma to start my PhD program, I, was, I had the internet in my um, home for the first time. And so I had watched Zeitgeist and I looked up other um, documentaries. And I, um, and I remember I was watching a lot of C-SPAN at the time because over the summer, I just happened to catch Dennis Kucinich on C-SPAN reading 35 articles of impeachment against the, the uh, uh, Bush and Cheney administration. And this was during the 2008 presidential uh, campaign where the Democrats and Republicans were just kind of all out, you know, battling for the, for the presidency. Um, and, you know, here's this presidential candidate, Dennis, a representative, yeah. Dennis Kucinich, you know, reading articles articles of impeachment, I was just becoming politically aware, and so I was I was consuming as much information as I could, and I had a couple of weeks before I um, started my PhD program, and uh, really kind of had nothing to do because I didn't know anybody, and so I just watched you know all the documentaries and video clips on YouTube that I could, but I was also watching C-SPAN a lot simultaneously, and I remember watching live the director or the 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 head of the NIST investigation into World Trade Center 7, uh, she, I, I believe his name is pronounced Shiam Sunder, mm -hmm. uh, explaining that, that, that the collapse, which I had come to understand, was only really logically explainable by a controlled demolition. He was explaining that it collapsed due to normal office fires. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this kind of really led to a sense of just... Um, well, like, there's a term that we have in sociology called recreancy, and recreancy means a loss of trust in social institutions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when, when, when you find out a pertinent piece of information that has sort of evaded public discourse, such as the collapse of a third tower that was not hit by an airplane, and then you listen to the government explanation saying that for the first time in history, a building's fully symmetrically uniformly collapsed yeah 
that that leads to the sense of recurrency. So sure. I can just interject there for a second, just in case anyone has managed to not see this over the past 17 years. I'll put a link in below and I would advise pausing this discussion and watching the 30 second video on the collapse of building seven. I might be able to graft it over on YouTube because no one, no one really denies that it looks exactly like a controlled demolition. And it would be just idiotic really to deny that it looks exactly like that. Uh, but the national Institutes and standards and technology came back and said, well, yes, it looks like maybe it does look like it, but it was office fires that brought it down. I think they, rejected even the idea that it was structural damage from falling debris from the, the Twin Towers. But you see this perfectly symmetrical collapse brought about apparently by fires, right? So that, and, and that's not congruent with what the eye is telling you. And it's also not congruent with, I think it's up to 3,000 now, architects and engineers have signed a petition um, saying there's no way that could have been brought down by fires. There must have been some sort of controlled demolition involved. So just to give the people that context. Now, at that moment for you then, you, you talk about losing faith in um, societal institutions. I've met people, a lot of people, for whom seeing Building 7 come down has just completely rewritten their view of the world in an instant. Um, because people are on a spectrum of that, but, I mean, particularly myself. You know, just prior to 9-11, my, my vision of the United States was Hulk Hogan and Coca-Cola, you know, that's the image we grew up believing in. It was about freedom and they went to Iraq in the 90s to fight for freedom. And, and I, I believed all that um, as a teenager. Um, but I was starting to see a darker vision just prior to 9-11. Um, and at the other end of that spectrum, you have people who have maybe been involved in researching the Kennedy assassination onwards and all sorts of geopolitical history for whom it was no surprise to consider and that it could be an inside job. It was a natural conclusion they drew on the day that the US government was prepping its population for some kind of foreign war. But for you, this was a big shock, I take it. This was a big turning point and, and destroyed your vision of how you felt the United States worked on some level. Well, I, you know, I, I had already um, earned a bachelor's and master's in sociology, which does a pretty good job at, let's say, shifting one's paradigm uh, regarding how we conceptualize what the United States is and what it does, what it, its history is. Um, you know, so, sociology is a good discipline for giving one the ability to critically reflect upon a society's culture, um, government, economy, military, religion. Um, and so I think, it, I think maybe for me, it was, it was just sort of the sense that it's, it's far worse than, any of my professors ever indicated, you know, and these are people who I trusted to uh, inform me. And, and at the time that I was learning about this, I had started my PhD program and I would bring up kind of little factoids and I would, I would literally be shushed by, you know, a couple of professors like the, you know, the hand waving, Oh, that that's, that's the Bush new world order trilateral commission council on foreign relations, conspiracy theory stuff. And I had never been called a conspiracy theorist in my life. I, I was fairly like um, apolitical. I mean, I wasn't apathetic because I, I, you know, I voted and 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 uh, and whatnot. But uh, you know, I really kind of took issue with being called a conspiracy theorist because what I was citing was documented facts. Because if you if you listen to or, or watch, um, uh, you know if you listen to quote unquote conspiracy theorists, you know, watch the documentaries, a lot of times they'll say, 
don't trust me, do your own research. And that's something that fit very well with my educational background because one thing that you're trained to do as a scientist is to do your own research. In fact, it's a requisite aspect of becoming a scientist that you um, are, are familiar with the body of literature, that you cite fact-based, evidence-based material, that you make lot, you draw logical conclusions. And um, having, having spent seven years now studying the 9-11 truth movement, I can say that I can say a couple things. One is that I, I think that um, at heart, it is a, it is a science fact-based movement. And uh, how I reached that conclusion is that, like myself, many of the people that I interviewed and that I study have almost a singular focus on World Trade Center Building 7. That, uh, that event, or anomaly to the official authorized account, is responsible for the shift in worldview for many of the people that mm -hmm. I've studied. And in fact, it's so important that, um, was it uh, 2015 when I went back to Manhattan for my third round of, of data collection? So I went three times to Manhattan on September 11th, 2011, 2013, 2015. Okay. Last year I went to Washington DC uh, instead of Manhattan. And, and that's then, because there were protests going on there from the truth movement, particularly on September 11th, right? So you went yep. to interview members of the truth movement. And did you meet people who were opposed to the truth movement too? You know, that's, that's interesting. I, I have yet to encounter in, in the field, that's what we call, you know, going out and, and collecting data um, like this. I've yet to encounter people who are vocally opposed to it. As in, like, as in the types of people that are called debunkers, or as I like to call them, deniers. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I have encountered them several times uh, online because I've also studied the 9/11 Truth Movement Facebook group. Uh, and if anybody in your audience uh, wants to, they can join and they can uh, look me up there and you know, have a conversation with me and anybody else in that group. Um, but there was a there was a conference going on at a hotel on September 11th. I believe it was the 11th, and then the next day, Architects for Engineers, um, and then also the the Andy Steele from 9/11 uh, Prefall, were organizing the dissemination of literature regarding the uh, proposal for the Bobby McIlvain Investigation Act, and so I actually participated in that by distributing literature to uh, congressmen and women, or at least their their staffers, uh, and that's that's an ongoing effort. So, uh, so sort of just to kind of back up a little bit. Um, two, like two things kind of are going on here. One is that, uh, my, my project eventually materialized into a concern with how the, the conspiracy label or the conspiracy meme fu functions to limit the boundaries of permissible discourse. Uh, and then two is that, you know, as, as I was being trained to be a so social scientist and a critical sociologist, um, I very intentionally um, evolved my research from a from a more, um, if one could say, objective standpoint to a more activist stand standpoint. So that was actually something that I thought out ahead of time, because uh, upon my first return from uh, New York in 2011, I sat down and did a debriefing with my major professor uh, and. You know, I base and I basically, you know, was was very emotionally upset. Um, in fact, I had, I had I had just an interesting anecdote. I got off the bus, I went to campus, I had to teach that day, and I had to go into a um, oh uh, 
Learning Services Office, and there was Dick Cheney on The View talking about the fact that he had just had a heart transplant. And so I had just come back from the field having interviewed 35 plus people mm -hmm. who are saying that this person is directly responsible for, example, giving a stand down order for the flight that was coming into the Pentagon, uh, if not responsible for other aspects of the ensuing war on terror, such as the no big contracts that Halliburton got and, uh, and things like that. And I mean, this was just kind of like, you know, uh, uh, something that set, you know, set me into turmoil. And so I'm having this, this debriefing with my mentor and basically it, you know, it came to light that, well, I'm going to have to make a choice. I'm either, either going to have to commit to, to this project or, or not, you know, or tr treat it sort of, um, with, uh, uh um, a, a less than rigorous attitude and effort, which is not acceptable. So it, with a with a topic like this and with an issue like this, it, it, it must be treated with rigor. And one, one of the things that I found while doing my research is that, I, you know, I had to read a lot about conspiracy theory and right. I had to read a lot about it from um, psychology journals and political science journals and sociology journals. And I found that, you know, almost by a matter of routine, um, the, the scholarly work that has been done by 9-11 truth members, such as uh, David Ray Griffin, Stephen mm -hmm. Jones, Neil Tarrant, it's either not treated at all, which is, which is called silencing or, it, you know, ignorance, they're ignoring it completely. Or when it's cited, it's sort of, it's sort of cited with this eschewing of, well, at base it's conspiracy theory, so we don't need to treat it seriously or rigorously. And the, the people who do, people like, uh, Michael Shermer and Jonathan Kay and uh, 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 folks like that um, will sort of selectively choose what it is that they're going to address. And having read several of the books and, and you know, watched all the documentaries and being familiar with the work, I, I know what's being left out and I know what yeah, is, sure. and I know the spin that's being put on, on the material. So in my, in my doctoral work, I studied the movement counter movement dynamics by doing a, a critical analysis of the literature pr produced on conspiracy theories related to 9-11. The very term conspiracy theory, I believe it starts to appear in the media sometime after the Kennedy assassination. And it's documented that it was put there, introduced by the CIA through its connections to the media. Can you speak to that and how it's used to shame and shut down conversation? in that there's an implication that if you're a conspiracy theorist, it's like saying you're not, not a very clear thinker, you get caught up in fantasies, you don't understand the way the world works. These are kind of the implications of the term. Yeah. So actually, uh, I, I, I just very recently uh, was on a panel uh, in Seville, Spain, at the World Congress on Middle Eastern Studies. And the panel is made up of a working group on propaganda and the war on terror. And so the paper that I co-authored is titled Conspiracy Theory and the War on Terror. And what we did was looked at the CIA dispatch 1035-960, which is the document you're referring to that sort of, the way I would describe it uh, to be a little bit accurate is to say it, it initiated the popularization of the conspiracy meme as a pejorative. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, I think, an accurate way of describing it because there are, you know, quote unquote debunkers. Again, I call them deniers because I think it's more accurate. Um, they'll they'll say things like, uh, "Well, no, the the term the term appeared in, in literature uh, well before the 1960s." 
Well, yes, that's true. But what we're concerned about is the, the rise in popularity of the use of the conspiracy label or meme as a pejorative, as a way to stigmatize, marginalize, uh, or exclude people as as the capital O others, right? Those, mm-hmm. those are the other people that, that we know that they're bad. And in sociology, what this labeling process does is it, it sets up boundaries for, you know, what's considered to be normative and acceptable and deviant and unacceptable. And so this operates behaviorally. I mean, we, you know, we, we don't accept murder except when the state does it, uh, but we don't call it murder in that case, right? Mm. So, uh, you know, the words that we use to identify and categorize the world around us and other people are important. And so that, you know, the, the discourse, which includes images and texts and, uh, you know, words and phrases and meanings and symbols, um, shapes our understanding of the world and sort of what we consider to be allowable speech or, or um, permissible, you know, uh, acceptable um, or even excusable. So, for example, um, in my in my dissertation, I discussed the idea that you know you you can you can espouse the the theory that 19 uh, Muslim Islamist jihadist Arab Middle Eastern hijacker terrorists, right? And that's all supposed to be one unified concept in the public mind. I mean, you're almost, you know, but by the way that the sort of Orientalism and mass media regarding the Middle East um, portrays, you know, portrays this group, it's a, it's a mono, it's almost a monolithic thing that, you know, you're that you're supposed to hate and, and dread and fear. I mean, there, you know, that's the the point of terrorists and the terrorist label. So you can espouse that, and you can say, you know, that the you can even say stuff like the Twin Towers collapsed you know, due to, due to um, the pancaking of the floors, which was even um, dismissed by popular mechanics and FEMA and NIST as, as not true. And you can get away with it. And people, you know, people might correct you on the physics, but as long as you don't say something like controlled demolition or yeah. something like that, you're in safe territory. So for example, even the, even uh, Thomas Keene and Lee Hamilton uh, in their, in, I forget the title of their book, uh, said that the, the commission was set up to fail. So they're allowed to say this, but you know, if you say this and you question more aspects of, of their final report, which I think was basically authorized by Philip Zelikow, whose previous work was studying the, uh, the, the generation and maintenance of public myths of all. And he's very close to the Bush administration. Right. And and I, I'm coming back around to the CIA dispatch. Um, so you know, so so there's degrees of sort of safeness or, or safety when discussing 9/11 or other historically significant events like the JFK assassination, um, even up to the the you know the known um, the known lie of the of WMD in Iraq. Uh, so th- there are degrees of sort of appropriateness or inappropriateness that that are generated, I think, from uh, this particular dispatch, again, that's CA dispatch number 1035-960, which uh, basically set out, um, and this is this is language coming from this memo, uh, that, that propaganda assets in the mass media were being guided and directed to, uh, to use certain forms of logic, such as that, 
you know, these quote, these quote unquote conspiracy theorists, um, they, they, they latch onto a theory that they fall in love with and they, they don't really provide any new meaningful evidence. And, um, and, and besides that, you know, the, 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 the type of massive conspiracy theory that they're proposing wouldn't be possible in the United States mm -hmm. because, mm -hmm. you know, it would be exposed. And, and for example, you know, in one of my recent um, posts in the 9-11 Truth Movement Facebook group, which is an ongoing online ethnography that I'm doing, um, I, I posted about a conversation I had with a friend who, who used that logic. And the logic is, is carried on in, in several of these anti-conspiracist um, texts and by psychologists, political scientists, philosophers, journalists that basically say, you know, uh, beside, besides just being, you know, a, a radical departure from reality, uh, our functioning news press would expose such a conspiracy were it true. And then what, get, what gets used uh, oftentimes is uh, Watergate and the Iran-Contra affair. Yes. That, that there, there's, there's, there's a, a Woodward and Bernstein out there just waiting to blow the lid off this. Uh, so why aren't they? And, uh, you know, there's, there's explanations for that. So, you know, for example, if, uh, if just at, at the broadest macro cultural level, if there is a general ignorance of anomalies such as the collapse of World Trade Center 7, then many people don't have cause to question the official authorized account to begin with. And so they, they just buy into the story sincerely. There could be other people who do know of such things, but also accept the, the official account. Or the, maybe they're even skeptical of the, the official account, but they know that they operate in a culture in which it's illegitimate to question mm -hmm. that account. Um, and so none of this actually requires like this concerted global conspiracy. It just says that what the CIA did in that dispatch was to set a cultural meme or, or you know, this, this idea, this belief system that was supposed to diffuse throughout society by the way of, of uh, what they call propaganda assets. Um, and... And so, you know, what, what I was saying is that, like, we, we can have these broad macro level ex explanations that don't sort of play into what the anti-conspiracists want to say is this, this global meta-narrative. Because one of their arguments is to say, um, well, what, what conspiracy theorists have to do is constantly add on layer upon layer upon layer of the conspiracy. Because it's kind of like, like in their mind, it's kind of like a lie, right? Like when you tell when you tell a lie, you have to cover it up with sure, six or seven, yeah. you know, more lies. So the the idea here is that, um, well, if if the media didn't report on World Trade Center seven, if if it was left out of the nine eleven commission report, if it was misreported by NIST, that implicates so many social actors that um, that it, it necessitates a global conspiracy or one of those people would have blown the whistle by now. Like somebody, some insider, you know, would have been morally courageous enough to, to blow the whistle. And since they haven't, which there's actually a, just an extensive list of, of whistleblowers yeah. uh, who are routinely ignored and shamed and stigmatized and silenced in other regards, um, that, you, you know, that again, there, there would have been a whistleblower by now. Um, so the, these are the tactics used by anti-conspiracists 
that sort of fall in line with the generation of the conspiracy label or the conspiracy meme. And it's carried out in society's dominant institutions of mass media, uh, of uh, um, academia, of uh, education in general. If you look at history textbooks, they, they treat uh, the, the events of September 11th very much in accordance with Hmm. Uh, the 9-11 commission report. Um, and so I, I think, you know, what one of my goals is, is to use a logic that doesn't fit with what these anti-conspiracists say conspiracy theorists use, which is to, to implicate intentional human action with, um, with malevolent intent. And this is the way that conspiracy theorists are routinely uh, defined as, is a, uh, a conspiracy theory is, is, is a belief that an event was caused by a malevolent group of secretive actors or something like that. And I don't, I don't think we need to use that, that definition. I think that's a definition that's intended to, uh, to propagate the conspiracy theory meme as a pejorative. I think a, I think a better way of thinking about conspiracy theories is the idea that um, police detectives, prosecutors, and even jurors have to be conspiracy theorists from time to time when conspiracy is a criminal charge brought up for example drug rings prostitution rings um, money laundering cases they have to theorize about a crime that may or may not have been committed in in whole or in part or with an entire network of people knowing every aspect of the operation or something like that and this leads me to one more thing and then i'll uh, uh, and then i'll stop on this rant here's another here's another um you know logic that anti-conspiracists want to um, enter into into the thing. Such an operation, and this kind of fits with what I was saying before, um, such an operation would, would be impossible to carry out because you, you can't carry out such a large scale, um, historically significant operation um, because A, there would have been a whistleblower. And again, there are extensive amounts of whistleblowers with the 9-11. Um, but, but B, you know, Nobody can keep that secret, and it's such a complex task and organization that it's just impossible to pull off. In which, you know, the the kind of response that I found in my participants is no, the uh, the invasion of Normandy, the Manhattan Project, uh, the uh, stealth bomber program, the NSA surveillance program. I mean, these were uh, these were large scale secretive programs that uh, were compartmentalized and operated on a need to know basis. And even high-ranking uh, officers and, and officials were unaware of, of uh, some of these programs and sure. part or in total. So, uh, well, let me push back a bit there, because I think I can recognize that some of the people who are writing about conspiracy in a pejorative way are acting in bad faith, okay? And I'm thinking of people like Michael Shermer, right, the, the editor of Skeptical Inquirer, who I just, I don't trust at all. I don't think he's act in an honest manner uh, i think it's demonstrable from a lot of his work around 9-11 and the psychical research investigations um but i can understand people in the general population who are maybe working 35 40 hours a week hearing these kind of arguments that are making a lot of sense okay in that even if there is good evidential reasons on the day for thinking something fishy went on with 9-11 you could say okay well maybe though maybe it's that the Bush government was involved in a cover-up about not seeing the warning signs, okay? Because it seems too far-fetched to say they would be involved in it. And this was a problem for me too, because as I mentioned, 
my worldview of America was Hulk Hogan and Coca-Cola. It was this, so this is completely incongruent with what I previously knew. And I think that to accept ideas, we have to have a framework to put them in. And I didn't right now. I could go to select then a kind of fantasiful framework about Illuminati groups going back to ancient Babylon and being coming from other dimensions and all this kind of thing, a kind of very grandiose conspiracy to fit this in. But I've no reason to believe that's true, right? It's just a, a fanciful notion of the world until I, you know, derived evidence for it. So for me, an important part of the process in coming to understand 9-11 um, was looking at maybe the previous hundred years of similar events going on on a smaller scale, going back to the bombing of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor, which probably most people haven't heard of, but essentially the USS Maine was a, a US warship that um, sailed into Havana Harbor in Cuba and just spontaneously blew up. The Spanish were blamed, and this led to really substantial wars uh, with the Spanish and ultimately an invasion of the Philippines and at the minimum hundreds of thousands of people died in that. And it's, it, that's down the memory hole now. And what we do know for certain is that it wasn't a mine, the coal bunker exploded, maybe. It was an internal explosion, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, but the United States media at the time jumped right on it as an excuse for this war with Spain, okay? Mm -hmm. And then you see that repeating in incidents that everyone knows about, like with the Lusitania, uh, mm -hmm. with Pearl Harbor, uh, slightly less, less well-known, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which sparked the Vietnam War. You see all these very dodgy incidents going on that spark major wars, um, and the media have an instantaneous response to them, which is pro-war and pro-government position, almost as if it was set up to go. They're never properly investigated. And then when you look back, you're left to wonder, well, gee, did that coal bunker just randomly explode on that ship or did someone light the spark maybe and was it all that accident going on in the Gulf of Tonkin that they thought they were being attacked and they weren't or was it a deliberate lie and then you come to 9-11 and you see okay this this event does not just spring from Dick Cheney and George Bush getting into power and saying you know what we should do in September there's actually a hundred year history and more of mm -hmm. this and that it was that rewriting of context and I wonder um how you would speak to that maybe in yourself and also in the people you interviewed and then they must have gone through a similar rewriting of their worldview and i think for some people on encountering things like the very direct visual evidence of building seven collapsing they reject it and say no I, i've heard people say things like well i think i've seen a video from another angle where it doesn't look like this now as far as i'm aware there is no video from any other angle where but i've heard people directly tell themselves that story oh yeah almost because it is so incongruent with their worldview that they reject what's right yeah. in their eyes because a, a bit like, I mean, you could think of, um, you know, the stories you hear about Galileo dropping the two balls off the building and them hitting on the ground at the same time and people didn't see it. They saw them hitting differently because that's what Aristotle said should happen and that had been around for yeah. 2,000 years at that point. So how, how did you find the reshaping of worldview and how do you see that as being like necessary to communicating about these kind of events? Yeah. So, there, yeah, there's a lot going on there. Um, I, I recommend a lecture by Michael Parenti called Lies, War, and Empire. Um, it, the first 10 minutes of it, he sort of lays out his philosophy of how worldviews operate. And, he's, and he writes about this, and I, I cite it in my work. Um, I think he cites uh, Upton, or quotes, um, not Upton, uh, Walter Lipset, so, somebody who says, you know, we, we don't, see first and then define we define and then we see and 
then he and he goes on to talk about how even even our mental selectors, sort of our, our cognitive categories, they're not personal to us. They're formed through years and years and years of socialization into the various communities and social institutions that guide our lives. And you know, if you think about it, if if you are raised in an environment in which people pretty much talk about the same or similar things, you know, sports and whatever's on on you know the, the news media and you know popular mu movies and music. It's all fairly benign uh, in context of, uh, you know, what we might consider to be the world around us having readjusted our worldview. But even even in um, popular culture, I mean, the the Transformer movies are essentially movies about um, aliens building the pyramids and about the you know the moon landing being about you know going up there to to um, visit aliens. Um, one of the new Star Trek movies involved a false flag operation to start a war with the uh, the Klingons. Um, you know, I, I, at one time I had a, had a whole list of of these types of conspiratorial things. So you mentioned, you know, the the um, oh the uh, remember the Maine and the Lusitania, right, and Pearl Harbor and um, the Gulf of Tonkin, and and you know, then you have uh, Watergate and the Iran Contra. You, you know, you have the the Kuwaiti uh, girl saying that the Iraqis threw the babies out of the incubators and um, you know uh, you have Clinton's wag the dog stuff with with uh, was it Bosnia or U Yugoslavia um, etc the stolen elections in 2000-2004 as far as Lance DeHaven Smith is concerned and I bring up his name because he um, has a very good book on uh, conspiracy theory in America and he has a series of articles where he deals with uh, the SCAD concept so S-C-A-D stands for state crimes against democracy you know so i think that a lot of people are engendered with this you know essentially uncontested concept of democracy i mean basically it can mean whatever you want it to mean you know i see my i see my progressive friends saying our our democracy is in peril and i'm like i'm like aren't you the same person who thinks that the you know the elections are you know tampered and and stolen and i was like and furthermore it's like we're, we're a constitutional republic and, and furthermore after that you know, the Alien and Sedition Act basically abridged the First Amendment by making it illegal to, to criticize certain members of the government. You know, and, and, you know, kind of going back to the Constitution in that era, the Declaration of Independence was a conspiratorial document. It basically said that the, that the, the crowned government of um, uh, Great Britain was conspiring against the, the, let's say, democratic order of the colonies. Mm. Uh, so is the Magna Carta. And you can go deeper into history than that. Judas conspired with the Romans to assassinate Jesus, right? Julius Caesar was assassinated uh, by one of his close friends who conspired with members of the Senate. Um, you know, like people like Michael Shermer, and really kind of he needs to be called out specifically, and I kind of wish I would have treated him in more uh, depth in my own work. You know, he, he, he has this uh, fallback position. He, he sort of uh, falls back on this idea that, um, well, you know, the, the, the exemplar conspiracy is the attempted assassination of Franz Ferdinand, Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And he said, and he, and he, you know, gives this sort of elaborate explanation that, you know, it was, it was supposed to be this concerted effort and, and, um, you know, it failed because, the, you know, because of uh, uh, this guy Roche, R-O-C-H-E, Roche's law that th those who can conspire don't have the time and those who do conspire are incompetent. Right, and that's that's the logic that we're supposed to abide by. That um, you know, our our betters, the elite, they've got better things to do than than to spend their time, you know, sitting around a smoky room hashing out plans. You know, like the DoD does, and you know, uh, with the, with the 
with the wars throughout the Middle East that General uh, Wesley Clark uh, said would happen and are happening across multiple administrations. Yeah. So Michael Shermer likes to say things like, that's how a conspiracy happens. It's messy. And then, you know, one only has to remember the conspiracy to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. Something like, what, seven or eight people were hung in that conspiracy trial? And it's like, okay, so Shermer, so uh, if, if, you know, conspir if the standard for conspiracy is the attempted assassination of, of Franz Ferdinand or, or you know, the, the messiness of that, then, then how did John Wilkes Booth and company almost overthrow that elected government, right? And, you know, I bring up that, that term elected on purpose to kind of draw back to this idea of democracy and the state crimes against democracy. So one of the things that, that Michael Parenti does in that speech in, in um, Lies, War, and Empire is he talks about you know what, what the state is, or actually I think that might be in another speech of his called uh, the gangster nature of the state, and he he uses a, a definition of the state by classic sociologist, my favorite sociologist, Max Weber, and so what Weber defined the state as is that that institution in society that has a legitimate monopoly over the use of force and violence, and the the operative word uh, in that is legitimate. And one thing that um, that people like Michael Shermer, you know, and I mentioned him before, Jonathan Kay, and all these anti-conspiracists try to do is delegitimate those of us who latch on to what they call kernels of truth. So the, the anti-conspiracists like to say that, well, you know, there's always a kernel of truth at the heart of any good conspiracy theory. And the problem with conspiracy theorists is that they just don't know how to properly analyze it because they're, they're epistemologically flawed. They have a flawed worldview. And, you know, thankfully, luckily for, for, you know, we conspiracy theorists, they're here to help us correct that worldview. And actually what their job is to do is to legitimate the dominant institutions in society. Mm -hmm. So you sort of have the, you know, the idea that anything that's legitimate first has to be legitimated. So you have generations of people who have gone through public education systems, in which case these are essentially government workers using government-approved textbooks to teach the history of government. And as, as James uh, Lowen, a, a, a sort of a famous sociologist, wrote in his, in his book, uh, Lies, Your, Lies Your Teacher Told You, in which he did a content analysis of, of widely used history textbooks in school, the, the history of the United States that's taught to Americans is basically the history of the federal government and basically the history of the executive branch of the federal government. And it's also closely tied to the militaristic efforts of the executive branch of the federal government. So it sort of solidifies a worldview that the great men of history are those um, presidents, you know, who had to, um, uh, uh, with, with moral fortitude and certitude, fight these wars uh, that, was, that was protecting the the beacon of, of democracy, the light of hope, the, the John Winthrop sort of idea of, of what the United States is. You know, and then you kind of uh, set that alongside Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. And, you know, you just, you just learn that there is just atrocity after atrocity after atrocity, oftentimes committed by the government. The difference between the government and the state is that, you know, the idea that, it, you know, a corporation could become the state if people legitimated the monopoly of the initiation of force and violence with it. So if we all decided that Walmart served our, or Amazon served our best interests and should be in charge of security, they could become the state. So, so government and the state are two different things. But right now, government is the state. And within it, people like Peter Dale Scott and others uh, believe that there's a deep state. So this would be a network of, uh, of 
uh, rogue, you know, intelligence uh, agents and actors and, you know, probably double agents and moles and patsies and, you know, informants and, and these types of things um, who, who operate within and among and between U.S. and foreign uh, military and intelligence and governmental and media agencies. And the deep, so the deep state, which kind of is a popular buzz term now, but there's a, there's a very good uh, conference put on in 2010 by a group of scholars, including uh, Peter Dale Scott and Michael Parente and others. Uh, I think your audience can look it up. It's called the Deep State Conference. It's very good. Um, so that predates the popularization nowadays, with, which I think is, is sort of um, obfuscating the idea of oh, it. Sure. But Peter Dale Scott's been writing about the Deep State concept for many, many years. Now, it'll yeah, and, be quite different to what you're seeing appearing in the popular media now. Yeah, and so, you know, people like him and uh, um, David Ray Griffin, you know, they're, they're, um, they're, they're among our aged wise men in society. Uh, you know, I think for me, that's a fair uh, um, appraisal. They, they have a perspective on history, let's say. So, like, for, for example, you know, I was, I was giving my story about, you know, where I was and uh, when 9-11 happened, uh, I, you know, I have students and I've had students for a few years now who were toddlers and not even born when it happened. And so their, their entire concept of it is what they hear through word of mouth, mass media and, and um, education. Hmm. And it's largely comprised of narratives that correspond with the official authorized versions that an, an innocent nation was surprise attacked by the enemy of, of freedom and democracy and, you know, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, this kind of solidifies a worldview that, that says, well, if I do, if I do come across an, an anomalous um, uh, piece of data or evidence or event, um, it, it can best be interpreted as either unnoteworthy because it's not discussed often or ever, um, or there, you know, there's, there's, a, there's some benign explanation Right. So there's just it, there's there's no malevolence in, in, in human history, because, again, the 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 history of 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 conspiracies throughout um, throughout human civilization is are, are treated as stochastic events, as sort of separate stochastic events. Because if you if you were to say and I'll give you a, just a clear example, if you were to say that there were some network or some some sort of operation going on where there was a transmission of knowledge or information throughout the last couple thousand years, let's say, mm -hmm. that led to a variety of assassinations and, and historically significant events, you're sort of going down the Dan Brown path mm -hmm. of Vinci Code, right? And when that came out, if you remember, I mean, it, it was just demonized and laughed at, and, and, and it's like the X-Files. It sort of gets used to eschew you from the legitimate um, uh, public discourse that the, the sort of agenda setters uh, want you to have. And, and when I refer to agenda setters, they, these are people like, again, Jonathan Kay and um, Matt Taibbi and, and uh, Matthew Gray, these sort of scholars and, and journalists who will just outright say that they believe that they should be the ones setting the agenda. They, they want the editorial control over what the public discusses. And so uh, just, just kind of wrapping this up, that kernel of truth that um, David Chandler, a, a, a retired um, high school physics teacher who, who actually studied in, in uh, I can't remember where, but prestigious uh, schools and, and had um, high marks, well-qualified. He forced NIST to basically, he forced NIST to admit 
that World Trade Center 7 collapsed at freefall acceleration mm. for two and yes. a half seconds. Yeah, I recall his work, yeah. Means that there was no supporting structure on the inside. And along with that, with the, with the material gathered by researchers that show that there was, you know, explosive residue found in the dust, which was, which was not studied. I mean, the, the, basically the official explanation is they found no evidence. Well, they found no evidence because they didn't look for the evidence because they decided already that the buildings didn't collapse from explosives, so they didn't need to look for it. And, and in my opinion, that's not a rigorous way of, or a legitimate way of engaging in, in research. I mean, you would you would be hard pressed to pass any of my courses if you brought that attitude towards studying material in, uh, as, as one of my students. So it, it just last word. And so when, when people look at these um, events, if the worldview corresponds to the narratives set forth by society's dominant and legitimate institutions, then they'll go through what psychologists uh, refer to as cognitive dissonance. So they, they'll have two competing or contradictory ideas, and they're either going to have to change their mind and worldview, which is very difficult because you have to accept the implications that the world is even more dangerous. It's even it's it's uh, right even more threatening. Which many of my participants described when they had their conversion experience, they were they they were anxious, they were depressed, they were fearful, they lost sleep, they 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 lost their appetite. They had disruptions in their in their social lives, in their work lives, in their marriages. And so one of the things that anti-conspiracists want to say is that is that we feel safer with you know with the idea that there are people who are so powerful and so in control that they can pull off these events and cover them up and make them happen. That and it's just such a logical contradiction, but actually my my data with my participants contradicts yeah. that logic. Right? So that's that's sort of my uh, um, my my answer because like i said there's a lot of lot going on in, in your statement sure and I, I want to ask you also about proximity right because i don't think that people have a massive problem with thinking that maybe nero burned rome okay two thousand years ago nero was a known dictator in the same way we don't have a problem thinking that iranians maybe forged their elections or when there were the bombings of the tower blocks in russia to justify their military incursions back a few years mm -hmm. ago and the FSB seemed to be closely linked to it. No one in the West had a problem believing this is something Russian state security and the Kremlin would get involved in. And equally, I think, if, let's say, North Korea, or you people can put the dictatorship they like in there, if we saw a 47-story building collapse into its own footprint because of fire, and then the North Korean government saying this was terrorists from South Korea and using it as a justification for war and increased domestic oppression. I don't think there's a single journalist in the US who would have a problem critiquing that narrative and saying, look, clearly a fire did not cause a building to fall into its own footprint. Clearly this is exactly the kind of thing an oppressive dictatorship would say to, to justify the actions it wanted to take out domestically and, and engaging in war. And I don't think anyone would have a problem really seeing that clearly and objectively, but when it gets closer to home, almost in the way we can see problems of other people on an individual level, we might not see in ourselves. Yeah. Can, can I address that real quick? Yeah, so yeah. I, I, I was just discussing sort of one of the very popular explanations for why um, people cannot or will not uh, entertain or accept uh, these quote unquote conspiracy theories. And that's cognitive dissonance, right? So this is a very popular way to explain it. I think what else is going on uh, speaks to um, 
a sociological social psychology theory called social structure and personality. So you mentioned proximity and pro proximity is one of the uh, key aspects of this theory. So like how close in your social network or how close in time, uh, you know, is an actual event or process, right? And then the, the sort of uh, um, structural aspect is like, what, you know, what is it in society? Is it your, is it your friends and family? Is it an enemy? Is it, um, you know, your, is it society's dominant social institutions, which are family, religion, education, government, the economy, military, uh, mass media. Um, so, you know, when we think about uh, kind of going back to, you know, people sort of having an objective appraisal, I, I really think that, you know, that's, that's so difficult that, you know, it, we're people equipped to, to give objective appraisals of reality, we wouldn't need science because we, we would already have an accurate perception of what it is that's going on around us. But, you know, our human empirical faculties are so flawed that we need a rigorous and systematic uh, method of, of collecting data, analyzing the data, uh, and, and reporting the results publicly. I mean, when science was first being established, it was actually debated whether or not it should take place behind closed doors or out in the public. Um, so, you know, we're, we're people equipped to give objective appraisals. We, we wouldn't need science. Uh, you know, Richard Gage has, as I think, shown um, that, the, that the official investigations by um, FEMA and NIST were not uh, engaged in scientifically, um, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, just kind of getting back to this worldview thing, um, there's another aspect that, that, you know, that's important, and, and it's uh, identity, okay? So you mentioned proximity. Um, I'd be interested to know that, you know, the differences between, you know, let's say various generations of Americans as compared to various generations of Europeans, Middle Easterners, Asians, Africans, and do, do this broad study of, um, you know, what, what are the sort of perspectives of those who believe and disbelieve in the, the official authorized account? And that's just me speaking as a sociologist, right? So that's the structural aspect. What, what, what are the age differences? But what are the nationality differences? Yeah. Because you know, if you, weren't, if you weren't born and bred in the United States being taught how glorious it was that Columbus discovered America, right, which is just a falsity, um, that, uh, you know, the, the genocide of the Native Americans is, is largely underplayed. Um, you know, if, in, in th things of that nature. I mean, there, there, there are aspects of, of United States history which one can latch on to and say, well, it's genocide of the Native Americans, the enslavement of Africans and others, uh, you know, Jim Crow, the, the um, internment of the Japanese, the bombing of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, the various wars. Um, but I, I think that the, that the function of the U.S. educational and, and media systems are to legitimate in the minds of people their identification with the federal government. So, when you go to school in the United States, you pledge the allegiance to the federal flag, right? So not, not like your state flag or anything like this. You're, you're all across the United States, right? Millions of, of small, impressionable children who haven't even crossed the, the threshold of uh, logical reasoning, of, of uh, Piaget's um, concrete operational states. They haven't even achieved it, and they're being taught to recite this pledge of allegiance, right, to, this, to a symbol. 
And so it sets in the minds of these people an, ident an identification of nationality, right? Of, of, of being a citizen. And so when somebody says 9-11 um, was an inside job, one of the responses is, you think our government would do such a thing to us? And, you know, it's like, okay, like thinking of it as quote unquote, our government is one thing, yeah. because again, you can think of it as the government, right? And that it's, it's not representative of American society. I mean, there's, there's far more millionaires in Congress than there are uh, uh, proportionally in American society. It's far more white, it's far more male, um, it's, it's far more aged. Um, you know, so you see, you're taught in the, in the, in, in the uh, educational system that you're an American and America is largely a force for good. And, um, and then, you know, a lot of the atrocities are silenced or obfuscated. And then you, and then you go to a, like a sporting event. I was just at a Cubs game at Wrigley field in Chicago and they, they were, you know, telling people to stand and rise to sing the national anthem. And they had military people there. And I'm like, you know, and I was the, like, I felt like I was the only one sitting through that. And, because I, you know, I've kind of reached this point in my political philosophy um, where, you know, I'll, I'll think for myself and I'll, you know, I'll choose what I, uh, you know, in, you know, believe and say and think and do. Um, and, you know, so you have the military, you have the militarization and the Americanization of, of the NFL, of the of Major League Baseball, right? And that's why one of the big controversies recently was, um, was a, uh, the football players kneeling during the, the national anthem, right? Because they're, because they're supposed to be this symbiotic relationship between these institutions. Whereas in reality, I mean, this, this is sports and that's government and, you know, one, one's a private function, one's a public function, et, you know, et cetera. And so again, I'm coming back around to this idea of identity that some people just have such a hard time because they can't, it's like, it's like when um, they can't separate themselves from the institutions that we are saying are, are responsible for the mm -hmm. event and the cover up. So it's like uh, when when a when a new human is born and when they're developing in, into about the first year of their life, they they identify like as their uh, primary uh, caretakers, as their significant others. And so this is why it's kind of traumatic for for you know infants and toddlers to be separated from mom or dad or or whomever's taking care of them because that is them, for mm -hmm. you know for all intents and purposes. And so when people say, um, you know when we attacked Iraq, right? Or when they attacked us, what they're doing is they're identifying with these dominant institutions as sort of a, um, an extension of themselves or as themselves as an extension of it. And so it's threatening to their core identity that, that you know, that the, that the society that has, that has clothed them and fed them and nurtured them and, and provided the, you know, the opportunities, uh, you know, and that kind of stuff is also, the same organization that's responsible for um for for committing one of the worst atrocities certainly of the 21st century but um you know the last 100 years and you know just to kind of carry that analogy forward well okay but you know these are probably people who they, they might debate the uh the um ethical nature of spanking or as a libertarian might say hitting children mm -hmm. and uh so you know just think about it. well a lot of people's parents who are their loving caretakers who provide everything for them are also the parents who use corporal punishment as a, as a, you know, as a behavioral uh, strategy to, you know, to get their kids to, to um, obey their authority. They, they will, they, you know, they accept the fact that some authority members in, in society use violence to 
um, to gain compliance and obedience to authority. I mean, you think about what law enforcement is, and that is the extension of government that uses violence uh, that is monopolized by the state. And, you know, so this is kind of something that I think escapes most people's uh, conscious awareness. But, you know, the, the core idea is that, you know, if, if what the state is, and it's currently occupied by government, if what the state is, is, is essentially a violent institution, why would, why would the state sort of not see violence as a, as a method to gain what is at the interest of certain actors in the state? So you have the, for example, the document project for the new American century. It is, it, it outright states that it need that the, the members of it, the project for the new American century, the members of it went on to become the Bush administration in one form or another. And they, they say, we need a self-inflicted wound. We need a new Pearl Harbor to meet our objectives. So they, they just outright say this, right? And it's, and it's like, if you have an understanding of Pearl Harbor as being a surprise attack on an innocent nation that's the beacon and hope and light in the world for democracy, then you have a very different interpretation of what it means when these state actors say, we need something like a new Pearl Harbor. Sure. Because for people like, I think you and I, that have an understanding of Pearl Harbor as an event that was, uh, that that was let to have yeah. you know yeah. was allowed to manifest itself you think okay so maybe these people are waiting for the opportunity right this is the, what's called the lie hop theory the let it happen on purpose and most members of the 9-11 truth movement um get get past this theory pretty quickly because mm -hmm. how did al-qaeda rig the explosives in the three um uh, world trade centers how did how did how and why did Al Qaeda yes. confiscate the the video images from around the Pentagon? It's almost a psychological middle ground that you, even though it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make any sense to the let it happen theory. It's almost a psychological middle ground people have to go to, in between. Yeah, and like I said at the beginning of this conversation, there there are varying degrees of acceptability and unacceptability when yeah. it comes to nine eleven discourse, and those of us who really kind of fixate and, and, and latch on to the, the so-called kernel of truth that is the collapse of World Trade Center 7, right? We, we've all, all of a sudden um, crossed over into unacceptable discourse and will be called conspiracy theorists. And that was, that was really what disturbed me about the reality that I had enter, entered into is that I could not have conversations about factual incidences in a logically, empirically verifiable way without somebody you know, saying something like, Oh, that's conspiracy. That's conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. I mean, this happens as a matter of routine because I because I am somewhat of an activist in this regard. Um, or, or you know, saying you think our government right would do this, and I'm like, you know, with that response, I'm like, yeah, Congress held held uh, special committee sessions and voted on it, and the president signed it, and the Supreme Court authorized it. I'm like, yeah, our government, and that's just this kind of like um, fuzzy way of thinking about reality, and it's what Michael. Uh, Michael Parenti calls stochastic thinking, that, that, that sort of things just happen. And Lance DeHavensmith, again in his book, um, when he discusses SCADs and the, the nature of state crimes against democracy, um, focuses on this, that you know, these events are identifiable because they're, they're sort of always treated in isolation. Like you're, you're not supposed to think about the connection between JFK and the 9-11 events. Mm, and yeah. you know, one thing in my data that I found is that, that, is that older participants in my research tended to say, well, I was suspicious of 
uh, of those events on September 11 because I had already studied the JFK assassination, and so I had I had learned already to distrust government. The yes. younger the younger participants are the ones who uh, who rely upon the anomalies and inductive reasoning based upon their observations, which totally puts a, puts a hole in the anti conspiracist logic that we we're you know we're all just a bunch of uh, anti authority uh you know skeptics who who are epistemologically flawed and we we latch onto a theory that we love and uh and then we build up from there and my my data completely contradicts that, that that's completely congruent with my anecdotal experience that people who had lived through the kennedy assassination and the vietnam war were much more comfortable thinking that the u.s government engaged in both conspiracy and atrocity and people i spoke to like that often had a much easier time straight away seeing that this was not what the the story they were being told it was on on 9/11. Um, a like a final question I'd like to ask. Actually, I've got two. I want to slip another one in, really, with to do with the concept of motive because I think it's it's something that we find difficult with our own government because we're presented the view that their motive is to go to work of a day for our betterment. Okay, they they go to their jobs and they look after our security and they figure out what the best education system for us is and how to manage our health care and, and all the rest. Um, and we don't think of them as having a separate agenda. And this was something that, again, I struggled with. And one of the things that um, I think really helped was I read um, a history of the philosophy of Zionism and the coming into being of the state of Israel. Because what you clearly have there is a very ideologically motivated government where you have this idea of Zionism, that political Zionism, that the Jewish people should have their homeland. And it starts off as an idea in the 19th century of no backing, um, really going around looking for financial support. And then 50 years later, they, they have a nation state and it all goes from there. Um, and along the way, uh, people in support of that ideology were prepared to commit atrocities and false flag terrorism, like in the King David Hotel bombing in, in, in the 50s, in support of the ideology, because that's the principal ideology, that's what's the most important thing. And when reading about this, I thought, gee, it's, you know, nation states and these kind of ideologies are in many ways similar to religious cults, okay? So you have something like Scientology, where people are prepared to go out and tell barefaced lies to a camera about what's going on behind closed doors in Scientology or a whole array of other cults because they feel that they are acting in support of some uh, idea that is absolutely essential to the survival of humanity. And with 9-11, I've tried to peg it onto a particular idea. So for a few years, I was very influenced by the work of Michael C. Rupert and his ideas on peak oil, okay? That the reason the Bush government did it is because they felt their backs were utterly to the wall because the world's about to run out of oil and we need to take control of the, the world's oil reserves and supplies. And I thought, okay, yeah, that makes sense if there was that kind of desperation motivating them. And that one kind of fell apart for me because... We're nearly 20 years on now, we're past the date all this peak oil stuff is meant to happen. And I think if you look at the underpinning economics, it doesn't really, doesn't really make sense. It doesn't explain the world as we've seen it um, over the past couple of decades. So then um, I've been left to wonder at motivation again and, and speculate about that. What, do you have any sense of a motivating ideology that would inspire 
um, whoever the conspirators are, let's say the Dick Cheney's and, and the like, of, as to what would inspire to take this incredible risk of pulling off yeah. this event. Is that something that you've contemplated? Sure. Uh, you know, and just kind of the, you know, the, the qualifier that uses this incredible risk. Um, I'm not sure that it was an incredible no, risk. That's an I interesting mean, point. You know, these are, these are people who run the world, you know, some of the world's major corporations, Halliburton, for example, um, and, and come to occupy the highest seats of power and orchestrate um, wars of aggression with impunity. I mean, these, you know, these are people who maintain their wealth and power. They're very successful people. You know, one of the, one of the criticisms of George Bush is that he was so stupid. And this, this is coming from Michael Parenti, but um, how buy into it? is that, you know, because he's dyslexic or appears to be dyslexic and um, that kind of stuff, um, he's, so, he's so dumb. So this goes into the incompetency theory. He's so dumb, he would have been incompetent, you know. And I was like, well, yeah, you know, he, he was sitting in that classroom. And there's a couple of interpretations that you can have of when he was told about the event. Is like one is, haha, the plan is going, you know, swimmingly, and I, I have orchestrated everything very carefully. Another one is, uh, um, oh, oh no, like, holy cow, this is actually going to happen, right? Like be, being told this and like, I, you know, okay, play my part, just sit here in action because, you know, other people have to carry out their stuff. Or you can take the conventional view and just say he's, he's dumb and incompetent and didn't know what to do and didn't do the right thing. And this, this sort of operates within this left-right paradigm. Um, <clears throat> I, I run a Facebook group called Hegelian Dialectics and the, uh, false left-right paradigm um, because I, I really think that you know you know kind of like Jesse Ventura used to say uh, Democrats and Republicans really kind of play for the same team mm. you, you know you can look at their their corporate donors and yeah it's you know some candidates and parties receive more or less money from others but it's a lot of corporate sponsorship and they get they get corporate airtime the debates the presidential debates are limited to to the two main parties and the, the issues are you know should should we bomb should we bomb all the Middle Eastern countries or, or just the ones that the Democrats say are, um, you know, uh, uh, bad countries? And, you know, so yeah. when Republicans are in office, the Democrats are, are the heroes. When the Democrats are in office, the Republicans are heroes. And this is largely due to, you know, identity politics and, and people thinking them, of themselves as in, in terms of groups, right? So, um, so when it, when it comes to motives, you know, there, there's different ways to sort of categorize the, the network of um, individuals, groups, organizations, and institutions that materialize these sort of historical events. And, and again, you have, to, you have to think about this in a very complex way because society, social reality itself is very complex. Um, there's a lot of moving parts. And I think there, re it, there is real conflict. You know, I mean, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that for example, Trump and Clinton colluded for Trump to win the presidency. Yeah. I, I think that they were really, they really, you know, tooth and claw, you know, and certainly people are, you know, uh, engaging in, ru ru you know, Russia, Russia phobia or however that's pronounced, uh, tend to be the Democrats, you know, the Republicans are, you know, slowly but surely or, or all together, all out getting on, on board with the Trump uh, GOP. Sure. Yeah, Mike Rupert gave the analogy of it's like different mafia gangs have competition to the point where they're killing each other, but they all band round the code of Omerte when it's threatened from the outside. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think part of how this works... Okay, so, I, you know, I want to be very careful because 
I sort of want to, want to identify the different ways of, of looking at this. And so let's just start with the, with, I'll, I'll sort of use Sam Harris's method, which is you start with the most extreme worst example and you back your way from there. So, right, the, the most extreme, you know, example, I think is like David Icke's, um, you know, the, the universe is a, is a hologram and we're ruled by reptilian overlords and, you know, things like that. Um, and that is, I mean, that's, that fits into Karl Popper's unfalsifiability uh, problem with conspiracy theories is that you really can't falsify that because if there really are shape-shifting lizards, then, you know, how would you ever know uh, type of thing? And if they're that powerful, if they're aliens, you know, how would you know? Uh, kind of scooting up, you know, forward, you have the, um, you have uh Oh, like the 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 Knights Templar Freemason Illuminati um, worldview, which says that you know this goes back to King Solomon, the Ark of the Covenant, the the um, the Holy Grail, uh, the the you know the Catholic Church, and and Adam Weishaupt's um, uh, oh con conspiracy to infiltrate the the Freemasons, and the Freemasons at the time were conspiring against uh, the Crown, right? I mean they were meeting in secret in secret lodges. Um, having secret conversations to engage in acts of terrorism against their own government. You know, that's one way of looking at the, the U.S. Uh, revolution. Um, so, so those, those kind of explanations for the, for, the, for the motivations really entertain what anti-conspiracists love to sort of fixate on, is that, is that this, these epistemologically flawed worldviews that connect too many dots and make, just make stuff up, um, you know, but what I'm doing is I'm as I'm slipping further and further into um, actual history, right? I mean, this the the founding members of the U.S. were co-conspirators in in um, a violent revolution, a violent overthrow of government. Uh, so you have, so you have like motivating factors, right? So one of the explanations that is sort of goes back into deep history is is the Rothschild Banking Group that says that. Uh, you know, the, the Rothschilds essentially figured out how to profit from war and control of the banking system. And so, the, you know, people sort of position the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and, and other sort of captains of industry, uh, what they'll call, you know, quote unquote, bankster, you know, the bankster type of, of globalists um, as, as the real sort of... Um, I at the top of the pyramid. So the the uh, on the back of the U.S. dollars, you have the the official U.S. seal, which is a Masonic symbol, right? I mean, you, this is just basic empirically verifiable historical fact. It's just how you interpret these facts is is really uh, what's important. So when I when you ask me about what the motivations are, I'm like, well, okay, I think it's money. You know, I think it's money and power and power and money, and it's the cyclical relationship. Now, are these are there these sort of um, deep history, uh, secret networks. Well, certainly secret societies have existed throughout um, history and, and currently. In 2004, we witnessed um, two former fraternity members, uh, brothers, I should say, of Skull and Bones at Yale competing for the seat of the presidency against each other with the, uh, with the loser in that um, uh, uh, race conceding to the victor before the votes had, had uh, been fully tallied. Th those types of things lead to this idea that yeah, there's there's cross-party collusion, uh, that that there is some type of cooperation going on behind the scenes. Um, now that's within the realm of politics. Certainly, there's cooperation between government and corporations. 
uh, and this gets into C. Wright Mills' uh, famous theory about the power elite. So what he did is he um, analyzed American central or core institutions. He said, look, the main, the main seats of power um, exist within the economic sector, the political sector, and the military sector. And he referred to the power elite as that intersection of coinciding interests. And so I think the important word there is coinciding or the, the coincidence of interest that exists among individuals who operate within the seats of power uh, in, in organizations and, and institutions that have the ability to make historically significant um, uh, events or, or uh, happen or to initiate you know, those processes. So, um, you know, and like along those lines, people theor theorize about, um, oh, uh, Woodrow's uh, initiation of the Federal Reserve hmm. Bank. So there was a central bank that had that whose charter was allowed to expire by Andrew Jackson, who had a couple of failed assassination attempts against his life. Um, you know, and, and people theorize about the the Lincoln uh, greenback dollars that he was printing and his assassination and Kennedy's uh, what is it executive order, like eleven thousand one hundred ten or something like that, uh, which he was trying to mint money and this competition between the central money, uh, centralized moneyed powers and uh, the, the, the democratically elected representative order of, of government, right? Uh, so, so that's to say that maybe, maybe we really do have representatives that, that have the people's best interests uh, in mind from time to time, and they go up against a moneyed power that has its, you know, at its interest, maintaining its, its monopoly over the currency that people use. And so they get assassinated. Um, this is a theory about Gaddafi. It's a theory about yeah. Saddam Hussein going off the gold standard, the, you know, instead of decoupling from the dollar, I've heard that Russia's engaging in this and uh, that, that type of uh, decoupling situation. Um, so I, again, I think the main motivations are money and power. And, and, and also, you know, um, you have ideology, you have some, dogmatic ideologues who are beholden to their interest and and in the and this you you cross the taboo border uh when you mentioned uh zionism and you you have um people like paul wolfowitz who uh i think it was paul wolfowitz who is a uh, had dual citizenship mm -hmm. you know you have you have uh netanyahu going before congress and, and pleading his case for the increase of of uh U.S. tax dollars to I think it's like 3.8 billion dollars in, in aid to his uh, to the Israelis, um, and the taboo is is that well now now if you mention Zionism, um, Zionists, Israelis, well somebody eventually and I and I, I can point this out in anti-conspiracist literature just to no end will eventually say, well you're probably anti-Semitic yeah. or or you have or you have um, the the worst case was uh, this guy Chip Roulette in his in his monograph um, Toxic to Democracy, which is just this like you know diatribe uh, you know poorly formed arguments against what he terms conspiracism. And you have to understand that that term conspiracism has the word racism embedded right in it. So he he actually indicted uh, I think it was Peter Dale Scott as being supportive of anti-Semites because he once sat on a panel with a person who used to work for uh, Lyndon LaRouche, who is accused of being an anti-Semite. And so you'll, you'll be, you know, just kind of even mentioning anything close to Zionism, Israel, Mossad, you're going to, you're, you're going to fall into somebody. Yeah. 
labeling you. And this goes back to, um, you know, kind of why, uh, or to the function of the popularization of the Holocaust in the American mind, right? I mean, it's like every, every, everybody has to know about the Holocaust and, and in some way, shape or form. And um, it, it's kind of odd because it, it works in conjunction with the, the silencing or obfuscation of the genocides committed by uh, the United States federal government. So if you're, you're unaware of, or you don't believe in the ge that genocide was committed by the federal government, you know, then, then when you think of genocide, you think of the Nazis, right? And and you don't know that the Nazis were practicing eugenics that were that were being practiced in the United States mm -hmm. before Germany practiced them. So you don't know this stuff. You you are trying to think that the United States is a Christian nation and that Christian na the Christian nation has to support the Jewish nation, and it's it's all just this sort of uh, cognitive operation that relies upon compartmentalizing our worldview. And I think that, like, once you start to, like, really kind of analyze what these in institutions, like, what, what is the federal government? Is that our government, like, as speaking out as an American? Or is that, is that an institution that's operated by people who are largely unlike myself? Like, I don't have a will to power like a lot of these people do. Um, I'm, I'm not a millionaire like a lot of these people are, right? I don't have these, these I don't have this Ivy League education like a lot of these people do. And I think that a lot of Americans are just trained to sort of ignore that or not even consider it, that they're, they're so unlike the people operating the federal government that um, to identify with them is, is sort of to, to identify with a, with a stranger, you know? Um, so again, the, the kind of point of, of, of what I was saying um, is to say that, you know, we have to be careful in how we think about motivations and intent because motivation and intent are sort of at the heart of conspiracy, right? But like any good detective will, will say, well, in order to analyze a crime, you have to know, uh, what is it? Motive, motive opportunity and, and intent or so, something like that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And so it's like, well, what, what motive would the, let's just, let's just say the Bush administration have, uh, in, and let's just say allowing 9-11 to happen. And it's like, okay, well, as stated in, the, in his, uh, in, in people who were in his administration and their project for the new American century, they wanted increased funding for uh, the military. They wanted to expand their operations throughout the Middle East, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we've seen that across multiple administrations. And so that just goes back to my cooperation theory, that there is cooperation among administrations. And it probably has something to do with uh, personnel who um, occupy positions that uh, don't depend upon elections, right? Um, so I think, I think you know, that's, that's pretty much my answer to that because I, I really get kind of um, uncomfortable when, I, when we talk about motive and opportunity, but you know, basically it's money and power, militaristic expansionism, uh, global he hegemony, uh, you, you just have to look to the work of Zbigniew Brzezinski's mm. book, The Grand Chessboard, and Henry Kissinger's book, The New World Order. And they just say it. They did. I mean, in their works, they just come right out and say, like, here, here's, here's what uh, the United States empire needs to do. It needs to expand globally. It needs to get, gain global cultural, economic, and politi political he hegemony. Okay. Thank you for that answer. I'll have one more question. Okay. Um, okay. Given all we've said on the psychological factors that maybe present people from 
seeing this. I want to be really um, precise in how I ask this. I don't want to ask how how can the 9-11 truth movement bring more people around to its side, but rather what direction can we take to facilitate more people being able to really ask the question? Okay, because that, that would be my interest, because I don't, I don't want to present it in a way that I want people to reach a certain conclusion, but what I'm aware of is that there are psychological and cultural yeah. barriers to even objectively asking the question. The question could be around 9-11, or it could be around a, a, a different entry point to reassessing the fundamental nature of how our world is working. And I wonder what your thoughts are on how the movement has gone over the past 17 years, where we're at, and what the future looks like. And I know you you have a Facebook page around, I think it draws on the philosophy of Mahatma Gandhi in connection to... 9/11. So, what do you what do you make of that? How what the future direction is? Yeah, um, the uh, the 9/11 group that I've started uh, is really just for me and my my close friends, but I've accepted people I don't know. Um, it's called 9/11 Satyagraha, and uh, so Mahatma Gandhi uh, coined this term as sort of a, a, a pe- sort of a, a peaceful means toward truth and justice. Let's say. Uh, from several of the interviews that I did and observations that I made of members of the 9-11 truth movement. Um, they say it's a movement for peace and justice and truth is embedded right in the title. So I was trying to find a word that sort of encapsulated that. Uh, little did I know there was like a 9-11 Satyagraha um, radio program or something like that already out there, but you know, great minds think alike. <laughs> so, you know, people, people like that who start that radio station, people like um, Andy Steele, who, who does uh, 9-11 Freefall, people like you who are, who are doing this podcast and having me on, um, the street activists who are going to gather at uh, the World Trade Center at 520 this year on September 11th, uh, engage in a silent sit-in, people like Richard Gage and Kevin Ryan and um, David Ray Griffin, Peter Del Scott. Niels Herrick, Kevin Barrett, Stephen Jones, um, even people like Christopher Boleyn and Ryan Dawson, the administrators of the 9-11 Truth Movement Facebook group, and all the other people who have started uh, blogs and websites and, uh, you know, spent their time on it are each doing what they can do individually. And, you know, as a, as a libertarian um, and as even furthermore, as an anarchist, uh, you know, I, I do see the world through the lens of uh, individualism. So this is my, my sociological colleagues would, are just going to, you know, uh, have a field day with that. But uh, I think we need to think of ourselves as individuals, because the more that we rely upon group think, uh, like group level thinking and categorization, um, you know, the, the, the easier it is to find divisive ways to divide and obstruct uh, what we do. So, um, <clears throat> you know, you get, uh, and, and, and again, I don't think there's anything wrong with joining a social movement organization. Like, um, I'm, I'm a member of nine 11 scholars for truth and justice, which had it split from nine 11 scholars for uh, truth because of one individual and, and maybe another one, you know, claiming there were like mini nukes and, you know, right. Just ridiculous, yeah. ridiculous technologies. Right. And so, you know, there, there, there are individuals out there who are sort of poisoning the well or, uh, you know, muddying the waters. And, and what I do, and again, I, I'm trying to, you know, just discuss what I do, is I, tr- I, I 
take them head on. Yesterday I spent, you know, several hours like arguing with people. I got blocked on Facebook by this one guy. You have to be very careful in your arguments. You know, um, you got to uh, record, you know, take screenshots and things like this because, you know, the, the truth operates in the light. Right. And I think the more that the more that information, more the more data that we have to expose what is and what is not true, uh, the, the more that will succeed. I mean, and this is, you know, the, the point of the 9-11 truth movement, you know, going out there and putting a, a billboard across from uh, the New York Times. And it says New York, you know, it's interpolating New York Times. New York Times, did you know a third building uh, collapsed on September 11th? And New York Times just ignores it. But with the, with the you know, you can interpret, they, interpret that as a, as a failure, but really it's, it's a sign of success because it's proven our case that there is a, a blackout or a silencing effect going on in society. And I think the more that we can, um, like, think, cl think clearly about sort of, you know, those types of issues, uh, you know, the, the stronger our arguments will be. So one of the, one of the things that's going on in the 9-11 the Truth Movement Facebook group is that there, for quite a while, there, there were several people who were debunkers or deniers um, just allowed to operate sort of ramp rampantly, hijacking threads and um, obstructing discussions and discourse, and and you know they, they'll they'll be evasive and in, uh, in their responses and just ignore certain um, statements and questions. Um, and really, we got to hold their feet to the fire and take them to task. So that's what I do. Um, I think that also what I do is that I think that we need to uh, counter the anti-conspiracist propaganda and and really think clearly about the conspiracy meme and conspiracy label that was set forth in the uh, 60s by that CIA dispatch. Um, now, so something that I would like to address sort of along those lines is, is the polarization um, that certain topics, like <clears throat> if you if you question the, if you question whether or not a 757 um, hit the Pentagon, uh, you run the risk of being called a no-planer, which is a pejorative term within the 9-11 truth movement. I mean, this isn't even talking about the public at large. I mean, this is just a division that's been created within the movement itself. Well, there's this idea in the movement that the no-planers, the, the, the planes that hit the Twin Towers were holograms, okay? And I think it's, it's a very fringe kind of idea, right? So oh, yeah. I'm just so clarifying fringe. what no-planer refers to, because I think there's um, That's what it, yeah. I, I've never gone down the road of the Pentagon because I've, I've seen like the architects and engineers have focused their efforts on the Twin Towers. So that's what mm -hmm. I, I've looked at. But I, I certainly see what people mean about the Pentagon, that it doesn't look like a plane hit it to the eye. I wouldn't go and, down that road because I don't see the same level of expert knowledge talking about um, the impact it, on the Pentagon. But, well, it's, it, it's one of the main fault lines within the movement right now. Right. And, you know, if you're paranoid and, and conspiratorial minded, you think that, well, it's, it's a fault line by design, uh, that it, paper by uh, Cass Sunstein and, uh, and Vermeule, his, his co-author, called uh, Conspiracy Theories, Causes and Cures, uh, which David Ray Griffin responded to with, a, with an entire book called Cognitive Infiltration, mm -hmm. which is a fantastic book. Um, you know, there's, it was that article by Sunstein was who later became um, the information czar for Obama yeah. uh, <clears throat> says that, well, one way to cure conspiracy theories in, in society is to encourage or incentivize 
uh, people to infiltrate these groups and to disrupt them within. And so, you know, you, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to, to you know, understand that this, that's a, a likely possibility that there are not, not just trolls, like general, general antagonists mm. who just want to, you know, muck up the waters, but that there are actual shills, disinformation agents, and, and uh, sure. you know, propagandists. And I mean, we had a situation in the UK where the most prominent no-planer theorist of 9-11 was um, an ex-MI5 officer. You know, so was he really an ex-MI5 officer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, one of the things that I think can help the 9-11 truth movement is, um, is, is to keep talking, is to not, to not let the obstructionists and the the trolls or you know anybody else uh um win i you know i think that you know if again if your listeners go into the into the uh, 9-11 treatment facebook group they can look up how i operate what i say they can engage with me um i'm, I'm fine with that so i think that we need to engage in what uh social theorist jürgen habermas called communi communicative action we we need a we need a free market of ideas, you know, and, and maybe this is my libertarian sensibilities again, but um, we we need a we need a open public arena of discourse, uh, and you know there there are people who who do that like Richard Gage goes on speaking tours and so Christopher Bowling goes on speaking tours and whether or not you you agree disagree with them in, in whole or in part at least listen think about it do your own research. Talk about it with your, you know, with people who might be open to it. Uh, stay calm, stay friendly. Try, don't panic, don't Good. despair. I mean, it's amazing to me as someone. I had my suspicions on the day. I remember seeing it on the television and just having this split in my mind about I don't know what I'm looking at here. Am I looking at what I'm being told I'm looking at, or is this something different altogether? And and also being. Um, having pejoratives used against me then when I brought it up in conversation, you know, in, in the ensuing months. Um, to be sat here 17 years later now talking about it and to have seen, I couldn't have imagined on the day that there would be an organization of thousands of architects and engineers spring up that would oppose the official narrative and intelligence officers and pilots and firemen and all the other range of people who have stood in opposition to it and the documentary films that have been made where this is like a global movement and you know because at the time it could have it could have gone a different way right i think often you hear pessimism expressed within the movement because um no one's been prosecuted it's not a majority opinion um the younger generation are don't have the same kind of memory of it as uh, people of our age do and upwards um, but this is something that could have all very easily been swept under the carpet and there could be no substantial um, uh, counterpoint uh, views on it now at all. And it's only for these movements and the people that have made documentaries about it that it's out there. And I take a lot of, a lot of heart from that um, as we sit here in 2018. Well, and, and this, is, this, is, um, this, this is a matter of, of deep contention for anti-conspiracists. I mean, heart hardly hardly any of these texts uh fails to mention that it's the rise of the internet that has led to the increased popularization mm. of conspiracy uh theorizing um and they they really lament the fact that they've lost control of the narrative yeah. and, and when yeah. i say they i mean like you have editors journalists academics bloggers um you know i mean in the uh 
after the panel discussion in Seville um, a couple weeks ago, uh, a anti-conspiracist 9-11 denier named Matthew Gray um, assailed me with, uh, with a five-minute diatribe of all the reasons that I'm a conspiracy theorist and that I'm wrong and that, quote, I'm sailing dangerously close to his territory. Um, and, and he was saying that, well, the, the danger of conspiracy theories to society is that they polarize people to the extremes and uh, stop discussing what they ought to be discussing. And th those are words. You know, it really struck me. And I'm like, and, and do you think, you know, and I'm like, do you think that you're the arbiter of public discourse, that you, you get to set the permissible boundaries? And they do. And mm. there's a really good paper on, on uh, the drama of conspiracy theories. I think it's like the dramaturgical analysis by Wexler and Havers. And they say, well, basically in the, in the drama of conspiracy, there's, there's, two, there's two competing narratives. Like there, there's two different worldviews. And this is, I think, um, you know, the way I start my dissertation off uh, close to the beginning, I, I quote, uh, I think, a passage from New York Times or, or, maybe, or maybe Time Magazine, where um, the author of that passage says something like, you know, um, conspiracists and, and I, I forgot how we phrase it, but conspiracists in the public live in two very different worlds. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, we do. We, we definitely live in two different worlds. And, and it's not like a, a metaphysical thing where, you know, we occupy different physical objective realities, we have different worldviews and different interpretive schema. And this is what's of concern to people like Matthew Gray and Matt Taibbi and Jonathan Kay and Michael Shermer and Rob Brotherton and Karen Woods and all these anti-conspiracists, uh, is that the, the dominant narrative of history is being challenged. They're losing their dominant status or, or their um, legitimate or their status of legitimacy, um, because people like you and I and, and many other members in the 9-11 Truth Movement won't stop talking about it, won't stop raising what they call disturbing questions. Hmm. And so this is one thing I did in my, in my dissertation, is I, fo I focused on one logical aspect of their argument. They say, they say well, conspiracy theorists just rely on just, just raising questions or just asking questions. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's really interesting because scientists do that, journalists do that, detectives do that, prosecutors do that. Like, we're, you know, we're, we're an inquisitive species. You know, if there's, if there's sort of one thing you can rest your hat on in terms of human nature is that we're a social species, so we don't like to be excluded or stigmatized or marginalized. We're also a symbolic species. We, we operate symbolically. Most of what we do is communicate with the, with the use of verbal or other symbols. And, uh, and, and, you know, the, the dominant symbols, the, the American flag, Coca-Cola, uh, you know, the McDonald's arches, um, you know, the, the, the military, they're, they're losing their, their significant statuses because they're being challenged roundly with, you know, health concerns, with ecological concerns, with economic concerns, political concerns. Um, and so this is a real danger to society's core institutions. Um, there's a there's a group called the the Compact Group, and they're they're a group of European scholars who are funded to formulate anti-conspiracist discourse. So that I mean, that's the, the they're getting government funding to produce uh, propaganda to that to to maintain the legitimacy of, of society's core institutions by delegitimizing people who question mm. uh, the, the, those institutions and the veracity of the narratives that support them. So, um, 
you know, other groups do that too. Atheists do that. Uh, anarchists do that. Um, you know, and, and those are just the, you know, the two main groups that I can think of that really challenge society's core institutions. Um, and so, so you see like some of the same tactics, you know, that, that are used for, for example, like I studied um, climate change skepticism and the, the, the institutions that were responsible for generating that skepticism. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like if you're skeptical of, of anthropogenic climate change, then you, you're probably relying upon some of the rhetoric and logic produced by the Cato Institute or <clears throat> something like that. So that actually gave me a really good framework for why it is that I ended up studying the competing um, discourse of the, the, the movement, counter-movement dynamics between truthers and deniers. And the reason that I actually use the 9-11 truthers uh, is because that's, the reason I use discourse among the truthers and deniers is because among the truthers was the title of Jonathan Case, atrocious book right. among the truthers. And so I embedded that in my title uh, on purpose um, because people like him will just directly say that, that, that they're losing power to control the, the agenda setting function of the, of the media that this is a bad thing because, because like Chipperlet says, it's toxic to democracy. People will stop voting. They're more likely to be skeptical of climate change. Of they, they won't vaccinate their children, and they're going to homeschool their children. And all of these things are kind of um, uh, important issues, right? I mean, we, we would say that these are very important topics. Well, they're, they're important partly because of the, uh, the agenda that's been set within the educational and media institutions to promote these things as sort of unquestionable social norms and, and things that are, that are designed to benefit uh, the greater good. And, and again, when I, I said, you know, we, we need to be careful when we think of ourselves in terms of groups and categories, because it's easy to slip into this thing called democracy or the, the greater good, right? So democracy is 51% of people can take away the rights of the minority. And that's why we have a bill of rights in the constitution is to protect minority rights, to protect the smallest minorities rights of the individual. So um, then you have this like, you know, John Stuart Mill utilitarian concept of the greater good, whatever that is like, well, what is the greater good? What's good? What is the greater good? Because I think that that what's good is is open and free discourse, uh, being being civil in our discussions and not name calling. Like I I was scolded as a child for calling, you know, my siblings names, but now in public, it's it's completely acceptable for pundits and journalists and politicians to, to just call somebody a conspiracy theorist, right? And, and in this day and age, people are losing their jobs, their entire careers for tweeting out uh, statements that can just be interpreted or insinuated to have racist or sexist content. But they all get a free, like the public gets a free pass whenever they use this conspiracy theorist slur. And it's oftentimes without rigorously uh, attending to the, 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 the very good scholarship done by people like, again, David Ray Griffin, I think the, the rigor that Richard Gage has put into his work, Kevin Ryan, um, it, they, they don't attend to it with the same type of rigor that they expect us to attend to, you know, their sort of uh, fanciful construction of what they consider a conspiracy theorist to be, which is just untrustworthy and out of line, loud mouth, probably you know, probably a, a hot pocket eating basement dweller, uh, you know, at, at things like this, like all these like kind of bad things. And you'll see this in trope after trope in, in movies, 
right? And TV shows and, and cartoons. And, and so, you know, the public gets a free pass when they denigrate, they delegitimize, and e even demonize people who are raising some of the most important questions, I think, of contemporary society, which is, who can you trust? Okay, thank you very much, Richard. I think we'll conclude it there, and I'll put links in I'll, I'll, to, well, vast majority of what you've mentioned, um, particularly to link to the collapse of Building 7 video, the short video, to a longer, I think there's an hour-long presentation by the architects and engineers. I'll link to the Facebook group you mentioned and anything else. Um, okay, yeah, if you want, I can send you some links because I, I remember some of the um, lectures that I cited. I can send you links to yeah, those. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Yeah. Any any final words? Uh, any final words? Yeah, I think I think your last question is an important question because I think that what the 9-11 Truth Movement is doing um, is historically significant in that uh, it, it, it does and can and, and hopefully will lead to uh, the establishment of, of actual truth, peace, and justice in the world. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. I hope this will be the first of many interviews I'll do looking at people who hold radically different worldviews and asking the question, is it legitimate to do so or not? I'm personally not concerned or even that interested, actually, in what people's conclusions are as to whether which worldview is the correct one or if there is a correct one. But as to the question of legitimacy, my own assertion is that Bill Maher is quite wrong in suggesting the likes of Dr. Elifrit should be shouting at pigeons in the park, and that we'd all do well to embrace a broadening of our minds to encompass these ideas. So thanks again for listening, and if you'd like to be kept informed of future interviews, you can either subscribe or subscribe to the newsletter linked just below.